This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. In this important episode, Eric Siegelbaum, 2019 Food and Wine Magazine Sommelier of the Year, is here in the studio today to discuss the impending trade tariffs on French wine and its far-reaching consequences on American jobs and American wine consumers. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on such short notice. I know that you're part of a grassroots movement to bring to light the potentially harmful effects these tariffs represent. But tell me, why should the average American care about tariffs on French wine, or actually any other non-domestic wine for that matter? So, you know, for everyone listening, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, For everyone listening, you might think I'm here to talk to you about wine. I'm actually not. I'm here to talk to you about jobs and the stability of the American economy. So the intuitive belief is that, uh, oh, you know, if 100% tariffs go through on European Union wines, and it's not just France, it's the entire EU, every single member state of the EU would be subject to these tariffs. So that's Italy, Portugal, France, Germany, um, Romania, um, Georgia, Bulgaria, even the extended countries of Eastern Europe and all that. And it's not just wine. Now, I'm going to talk specifically about wine, but on the docket, and at the, towards the end of this, um, I'm going to refer you to a website if anybody wants to go check out the entire list. You can go to the USTR website uh, through the government page, or I'll give you a website uh, for our movement. And what does USTR stand for? Uh, U.S. Trade Representative, Representative yeah. Okay. Um, but they're ultimately the ones that make their decision. Um, but it's the list is over 200 products long. It includes... Um, all liquor and liqueurs, all wines, uh, no matter the style, no matter the color, no matter the alcoholic strength. It includes pasta, olive oil, olives, wow. ch- uh, cheese, all meat, all seafood, nuts. Uh, um, it's uh, fruit, jams. Uh, that's just the food stuff. Then it's like small tools, paintbrushes, textiles, small kitchen appliances, bedding, sweaters, cashmere, pashminas. It's it's an absurd yeah. list. So let's back up for a moment, Eric. How did this all get started? I mean, it's as I recall... We're, we're drawing all of these luxury food items, and not even luxury food items, these food items and wine, into a trade dispute over airplane parts? Uh, basically, right? yeah, basically that's it. So uh, <laughs> Something that has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do right, with wine. Right, the absurdity uh, of it all. So um, I'll give a very quick gloss over. Uh, firstly, I think what's really important to know is that there were actually were and still are two different trade disputes on the table. One is the digital services tax, and that's the one that's been getting a lot of press lately because of the tweet from Macron and Trump like, oh, we came to an agreement, there's going to be no tax. Well, that was a very focused tax proposal, or I should say tariff, specifically on champagne uh, in response to the French government saying, hey, it's not fair that the likes of Amazon and Google and all these digital companies are making billions and billions of dollars in our country and we're not getting a cut of it. So that's – and frankly, if France would have called it a tax, not a tariff – we might not have even had this problem. But either way, the DST thing hasn't been resolved. It's just been paused. Trump and Macron have agreed that for the end of the through the end of the year, they're just not going to tariff and counter-tariff each other, and they're going to figure out a way to come to an agreement. So people have heard like, oh, it's done, and they think, okay, we're done. Sigh of relief. The real issue is the Boeing-Airbus dispute, where the proposal, a carousel of items, we talked about what they are, of up to 100% tariffs. Um, and this is the result of a near 16-year-long dispute that Airbus was being illegally subsidized by the European Union and the World Trade Organization, this uh, recently, just late last year, finally came to a ruling and said, yes, these are illegal. The U.S., you are legally entitled to impose counter-tariffs. 
So the whole reason for this is an aircraft dispute about illegal subsidies happening to a uh, European aircraft manufacturing company that gives them a arguably unfair trade advantage internationally over an American uh, airport airline Fine. manufacturer. Then, then go ahead and put tariffs on their on their airplanes. Exactly. I mean, if, like, if if Delta or United wants to buy an Airbus. Put a tariff on that. And, and also, you know, like uh, apart from, you know, I don't want to pass any judgment on Boeing. We all know what their news has looked like for the last couple of years. But at the end of the day, this is like a taxi driver complaining that Uber and Lyft are taking away their money. It's like, well, if your car was clean and you showered and dressed nicely and followed instructions and drove properly, then you wouldn't lose business. So there's a reason. And your that, fares were reasonable. And your fares are reasonable. And right? by the and way, with, with, with all due respect to cab drivers. You know, I'm never going to use your name now when I get yeah, in the yeah, cab. No, 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 no. I, <laughs> Thanks I, I, a lot, Eric. I'm, just, I'm using I'm using an extra, a hyperbolic example, but but you get the idea. So, so ultimately, um, the the idea I think I mean I don't I don't get to talk to our executives in power, um, so I believe the idea behind wine specifically is that it's very symbolic. Now, in their effort, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but I want to say it's something like a 7.8 billion dollars of legally collectible tariffs. They're one of the things they're going after is the wine and spirits industry because it's symbolically important to many EU countries. Um, here's why this is a problem. And again, this is not a bunch of elitist snobs complaining about the fact that their unnecessary expensive drink is going to be even more expensive. Okay, this is not about Bordeaux and blue cheese costing more money. It's an issue with what this could do to the American economy. So just for some understanding, for every $100 that's spent on European Union wine. And again, I'm really just going to talk about wine, even though this, because I don't have no, the no. numbers and the research for other products. And we don't have the time. Also that, right. <laughs> um, so for every $100 that's spent on European Union wine, $85 of that 100 is generated and remains within the United States. So, what? Yeah, 85 of every $100, 85%. So if you're in a restaurant or a wine shop and you spend $40 or, 10, or if you say, let's do easy math, $10 on a glass of wine in a restaurant, that's from France or Spain or Italy, $8.50 of that stays, all, stays in the United States. In the United States. Right. Only 15 uh, cents of that, or 15 percent, right. the dollar yeah. 50, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, goes back to the EU. Now, that's not to say that things are marked up 85%, but there is a federally mandated three tier system of distribution where it goes from winery to importer to distributor to retail or restaurant to end user. And it's, right. it's all of the economic builds that happen. It's a supply chain. Right. It is absolutely supply chain. This is not trickle-down economics. I want to be very clear. This is this is absolute mandated, guaranteed revenue structures along the chain to get from winery in Europe to consumer's mouth, whether in a restaurant or in a, at home or in a retail shop. Wow. So then what happens to all of those owners uh, along the supply chain? What happens to the importer? What happens to the distributor? What happens to the restaurant if these prices go up? So herein lies the problem. So uh, if these 100% tariffs go through... Um, there are roughly, and this is a, you know, I've heard 6,400 and 6,700, so we can meet at the middle, middle and say 6,500. There are 6,500 mostly small to medium-sized businesses along the three-tier distribution chain that operate in the United States that would absolutely risk going bankrupt and shuddering. What's crazy is if you, um, about $10 billion a year of European Union wine comes into the U.S., now that's its landed cost. That's before it takes its three tiers of markups. So by the okay. time that hits end consumers, we're talking about conservatively $20 billion of money generated in the United States, of which, again, 85% of that stays in the United States. 
That's that's a huge number. Right. So now we're talking about the potential loss of $20 billion to internal American small business revenues. We're also, just think about the tax implications there. That's just sales tax alone. You're looking at nearly $2 billion of lost sales tax revenue for state and federal coffers. These are like- And this is just on wine. This is just on wine. We're not even talking about spirits, which are also tied into the three-tier distribution system. So if all this stuff comes into effect- um, it could absolutely devastate the supply and and de- not the supply, but the supply chain. So we're talking about 6,400, 6,500 companies of which conservatively 80% of them won't surf- survive that. Now you're talking about, uh, you know, close to, you know, at, at the basics estimates over 100,000 jobs lost, but I've heard, you know, estimates of half a million to a million because 1.7 million people are employed in the American uh, in the American economy, in the wine business. Uh, so even conservatively, we're talking about potentially hundreds of thousands of jobs here. That doesn't even talk about the payroll taxes that these companies pay, the other business taxes and operating uh, things that these people pay. And that's just the first layer. Now you get into the next layer of distribution, retail shops and restaurants. So if these tariffs go through, your $20 pasta and $9 glass of Italian wine at a local trattoria, well, every ingredient of that pasta costs double. The wine comes in at double, and the way the three-tier distribution system works, it marks up as percentages. So the wine more than doubles because everybody takes a percentage right. cut along the way. Right. So conservatively, your $29 pasta and glass of wine is a $70 or $80 pasta and glass of wine. That's crazy. And I'm not, I can't pay that. You can't pay Nobody's going to pay that. So now it's going to cripple restaurants. And restaurants, you know, for everyone who's listening, I've been in the restaurant business nearly three decades. A restaurant that runs at the end of the year at 3% profitability can pat themselves on the back and say, wow, we did a really great job. Holy crap, we made 3% profit. And in the restaurant's profit divisions, about 80% of a restaurant's profitability comes from alcoholic beverages, spirits, and wine. So you are crippling a restaurant's ability to be profitable. Most restaurants will not be able to continue to operate. So now you have shuttering of more businesses, more tax losses, more unemployment. You've got waiters, cooks, servers, dishwashers, bussers, hosts, managers, event planners, et cetera, all unemployed. Now, I've been in the restaurant business my entire life. Most people in the restaurant business aren't impassioned to be in the restaurant business in their entire life, especially at the like server, food runner, busser, dishwasher, cook level. These are people that are putting themselves through school, supporting their families. It's right. I love this industry, but it's a fairly thankless industry in terms of the amount of stress and physical effort for the amount of return. Uh, I've been there. So when we cripple- I worked my way through school exactly. as a waiter. So when we cripple that industry, now we are doing, you know, I don't have studies because there isn't an economic study that has been published about this, but we're talking about potentially devastation in the domestic economy to the term of billions, tens of billions of dollars. So again, yes, it would suck if my European wines cost more, but I am far more concerned with state and federal tax losses and with unemployment losses and with all of these billions of dollars that are lost in the domestic economy. But what about the argument that, oh, well, we'll just start drinking more domestic wines. I mean, California makes wine. Oregon makes wine. We can just drink more of those wines. Sure, that's, that sounds very intuitive, and I'm glad you brought that up. So first of all, there's no direct trade-off. Um, you know, Chianti is Chianti because of the specific things about where it grows that make it special. Right. The grape is Sangiovese. You can plant Sangiovese in the United States. There are many parts of the U.S. that produce Sangiovese, including California, but it doesn't taste like Chianti. Burgundy is Burgundy for the same reason. Great Chardonnay or Pinot Noir exists in the U.S., but it's not the same. Uh, a good analogy would be thinking about this. Imagine you had to go from New York to L.A., and you could either fly business class or for more money, you could take the bus. So more money taking the bus is just switching to American wine. 
It's not that American wine isn't great. It's not that there aren't great American wines. But the logic is, well, you end up in L.A. anyway, so who cares how you get there? But it's a very different experience. But that's not even – I mean that's an argument to people who love wine. For people who could care less about wine, there's still something that's worth noting. If this happens, the three-tier distribution system is federally mandated and it includes domestic wineries. If you cripple 80 to 85% of their pathways oh. of distribution, now every small, medium, and even medium-large-size winery, even large-size winery, has no access to m many of the states in the U.S. Every state has their own alcohol laws, but the federal mandate is that you have to go through the three-tier distribution system. So it will eviscerate most American wineries' ability to distribute within the domestic market outside of their own state or direct-to-consumer shipment states. Right, because what we've done is essentially we've crippled the distribution system, in, in for the particularly for the smaller and medium-sized distribution systems. And then if we – the larger – let's just say the larger distribution systems weather this, Right. But we're talking about their their mega distribution system. Right. So now my little winery, my little California winery, becomes one of 5,000, 10,000 labels. Yep, exactly. And how am I going to get any attention on anybody's shelf? Exactly. And also what you end up doing is moving toward, closer towards a true monopoly in the not only the distribution side of things, but also the supply side. So if this, if you know, if, and I'm not trying to sound alarmist, but if this all goes through and we're left with six or 10 massive mega distributors, the only people that are going to be able to gain any real ground are the million case production industrial commercial wines that most people don't like to drink anyway or or that really just aren't worth their price. So we are talking about a massive systematic failure that will hurt the United States in every way imaginable, including these wineries, which are even the largest ones are still considered medium-sized business for the most part. The other thing is when these distributors and, and, and um, importers scuttle, delivery drivers are unemployed, dock workers are unemployed, truck uh, maintenance technicians are unemployed, um, administrative staff, receptionists, salespeople, managers. And then there's even more stuff that happens. Like, I don't know the figure, but as a sommelier, I can tell you that every single day in every city, there are multiple European wineries or brand ambassadors or wine representatives right. hosting yeah, lunches, absolutely. hosting dinners, supporting yeah. small businesses. Sure. Those all go away. Their tourism dollars dry up. Hotel revenue. I mean, the the scale is massive. And not you know, not not to use a, a wine analogy or or term of art, but it, it really is a ripple effect. Oh my God, yeah. And and you know, so what I'm more concerned with again is that uh, there is a lack of understanding of what this really means. And back to your originating point. This is a dispute between two mega multi-trillion dollar companies, or maybe at least multi-billion dollar companies, but I think they're both trillion dollar companies. Or close Airbus to and it. Boeing? Yeah, or yeah. close to it. Right. And the, the affected targets are going to be small businesses in a completely unrelated industry. Yeah. So sort if, of like Greek mythology where the gods would fight and man would suffer. Yeah, pretty much. It's like um, I had a bad experience at a supermarket, so I'm going to go set a pet store on fire. It's like, uh, I don't understand. What's one got to do with the other? Exactly. So uh, let's go back to the tariffs for a second. I'm curious. So um, there, when are they scheduled to go into effect? Is it I wish soon? I knew. Okay. So um, based on the the sort of laws of, of how this all works. And I, I'm by no means a foreign policy or trade policy expert. You know, I've I've learned a lot of this because I've spent my last three weeks in the halls of Congress and the right. Senate. You've been, up, you've been spending a lot of time on Capitol Hill. By the way, it's really easy to walk into the House and Senate and uh, buildings and congressional buildings and get appointments. You just have to go in and, and ask. ask, basically. Yeah. But ultimately... When these are going into when effect. The, when these go into yeah. effect is, it could be as soon as it's happening right now while we're recording this. 
Um, but the, what I understand the deadline of the, of the WTO and USTR laws are was that they had, I think, a 60-day scenario from their hearings in December, which puts us at February 17th, which is the long weekend. So really, it puts us at like February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah, right. Tell me about it. Um, I believe at that point, a decision has to be made. So they could be any time between now and the and next two-ish weeks. Okay. Um, they could be post that. I actually don't know how this all works. Again, I'm not a foreign trade expert, but but the sort of um, the sort of uh, bullseye calendar is that middle of February where a decision has to be made. So so what we've been asking, you know, we're I'm part of a of a grassroots organization of concerned people that form because we are worried about how this could devastate not just our industry but broader ripples in the American economy. Um, so what we've been asking, what we've met with, uh, you know, Congress people and their trade and foreign policy representatives and senators and governors and their trade and foreign policy representatives, we've basically been saying, look, take wine, and I'd like to argue spirits and food, but at the very least, take wine and spirits off the carousel of potential, because based on WTO laws, they have six months where they then have to re-review. If they put it on now, that means they're on for six months. Wow. If they don't put it on now, that means they have six months to launch a proper economic impact study and decide, is this the right way to recoup? And is this the right thing? And I think anybody in their right mind would do that study and see, no, this is not a good way to do this. There's a better, a better possible response than that. So you're really asking them to just step back from the ledge and take a breath. Take your foot off the gas. I'm not even asking you to pump the brakes. Just take your foot off the gas and decide if you want to continue driving down this highway. Because once you, once you, once you get on that on ramp, there's even if you get off, you're now miles in the wrong direction. Right. And and to forward that analogy, even if these tariffs go into place for a couple weeks or months, we they could be temporary, right? Yeah, the tariffs could be temporary, but the impacts will be lasting. We receive so much European Union product because of decades or even generations long, sometimes centuries long relationships with these importers and their farmers and their wineries and all of that. The reality is that almost every single European Union winery could immediately stop doing business with the American market, double their prices, and China, is, well, they'll, they'll buy it in a day. So what this policy would ultimately do is it would, by the way, we represent roughly 15% of, of uh, EU wine exports. Okay. As anyone in the wine business knows, bad weather and like a rainstorm in September means a vineyard might lose 15% of their production. So it's not that the European Union wineries can't deal with losing our business. If we suddenly are, are a non-stable trade partner, they're obviously going to go to another trade partner. Absolutely. China is champing at the bit to get more European Union wine. And the only reason we get what we do is because of these relationships. So what ultimately ends up happening is it doesn't punish or put pressure on the EU because these farmers have nothing to gain. First of all, they're not organized. And these wineries and farmers have nothing to gain by, by uh, you know, pitching their governments that, no, we really need to do business to America. But the reality is they'll make more money doing business with China and other markets. It's not just China, but they're the big one. So it doesn't punish the EU. It cripplingly punishes America, and it rewards our biggest trade competitor, which is China. So why in the world would we put tariffs in that hurts the United States and uh, you know somehow doesn't really affect the EU negatively and helps China? I am really <laughs> – I'm, I'm being very sincere about this. Eric, I don't get it. I don't get it either. And I want to be very clear. This is absolutely a nonpartisan issue. This is an American issue, and I will tell right. you, we have met with – that we have received close to unanimous agreement on both sides of the aisle. Wow, that, something they both agree on. Yeah, that this is crazy, right? That this is an American issue. The problem is uh, the chair of the USTR, Lighthizer, 
takes his directions from Trump. And right. I'm, I'm going to make no political statements here. It okay. doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or Independent or anything else. It has nothing to do with how you feel about our current president. The reality is the decision comes from the top and the, the, you know, the USTR executes. So what we are hoping, like if I were to give anyone listening a call to action, firstly, share this podcast so people understand the bigger issues, but also please call, email, write your congressional representatives, your senatorial representatives, your governors, and explain to them why this is bad for American people, why it's bad for American jobs, why it's bad for the American economy. This is absolutely a nonpartisan issue, irrespective of how anyone might personally feel about the current ruling party. This is about really uniting as one America and saving something that could be absolutely devastating. So is there a place where people can go either for more information? Is there a website that you're aware of? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, we are a grassroots roots movement. You know, we, none of us ever planned that this was even going to happen. So uh, the website is uh, oneamericamarch.com. And the reason it's called that is because we are planning a march on uh, February 9th okay. uh, as sort of a, a show of opposition to this uh, that will be in Washington, D.C. Uh, details, uh, location, and timing and all that are on the website, but I'd encourage everyone to go to that site. Also on that site is a list of the hundreds of items that are on the carousel for potential terrorism. Yeah. Um, the other place you can go if you have the patience to navigate government sites is if you go to the you know the USTR government site, um, they have the you know they have all the information about the dispute, and then there are links to the I think they call them annexes that show all of the possible things that could be tariff. So. Okay. So, Again, USTR, United States Trade Representative. Right. Right. Okay. Um, but but yeah, I mean, ultimately, look, I mean, we barely scratch the surface. I could talk about this for another hour, but I don't. I, in the in the interest of people's attention, uh, there there are so many more things that we could say. But but ultimately, I just want to reiterate, this is not about elitists, wealthy elitists having to spend more money on an unnecessary luxury good. This is about the fact that this product is absolutely vital to hundreds of thousands of individuals and thousands of small businesses in the America and billions of dollars in the American economy. Like let's, I mean, there, there's so many, so many other points. Like I used to live in Pennsylvania. That's a control state. The Pennsylvania liquor control board is a governmental organization. That is the only legal entity that can sell alcohol in the state of Pennsylvania. The PLCB is already close to bankruptcy. They cannot afford to lose the, the millions and millions of dollars of, of revenue on, on European union wine that they sell. The state of Pennsylvania certainly can't afford to, to pay out of their state reserve funds to keep that system afloat. And now you're talking about thousands of people with pensions that the state would have to pay and, and unemployment dues that the, the state would – or not dues, but unemployment uh, insurance that the state would have to pay and all this other stuff. So um, it's not good for American wineries. It's not good for American jobs. It's not good for American economy. It's not good for state and federal infrastructure financing. There's nothing nothing – that works here. And if you if you want the proof of that, so in October, a 25% tariff came into play on just certain European Union imports. And again, I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was French, Italy, French, Italian, and German wines under 14%. Yep, under 14, or I don't remember what yeah, the exact thing was. It was under 14%. Was. It, was a, it was a very small segment. It excluded yep. sparkling wines. It was a very small segment of what comes. And even with that 25% tariff, there are people that have already laid off employees. I mean, I, I was speaking to one importer. He had a container on the water that was pre-purchased and pre-sold. In October, when that tariff unannounced came into place, he had to come up with $31,000 in two days. Out in of order, his own pocket. Out of his own pocket yep. that he could not recoup in order 
to receive those products. And by the way, I don't know if you know much about international shipping, but for every day that your container is landed and through bond that you don't collect it, there are thousands of dollars of penalties. So you can't just let it sit there. Like that's money that he had to, that came right out of his business that he could not pass along to his consumers. So in October, November, December is the most profitable part of the year for importers and distributors and restaurants. And most of the importers and distributors I know and spoke with, and I'm talking about hundreds, saw almost all of their profits for the entire year evaporate because of a 25% tariff on some goods in October. So you can only imagine the devastation that a 100% tariff would mean. Uh, it's just, it's mind boggling. Eric, you are an educated and eloquent spokesperson for this cause. I cannot thank you enough for being here today, again, on such short notice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And please um, look at One America March. Uh, com. It, it is by no means a robust, intensely well-designed website, but it will give you the core information that you need. Please, if, if you're in the D.C. area or can easily be in the D.C. area, join us on February 9th in a very peaceful but very poignant demonstration that we stand united as one group of concerned American citizens on both sides of the aisle that want to protect our way of life, our freedom to choose, our free trade, uh, our economies, state and federally, and American jobs. Thank you. Thank you. If I'm in town, I'll be there. Please do. Thanks for listening to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at The Vine Guy, and don't forget to catch my Wine of the Week segments on Fridays on WTOP and WTOP.com. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Until the next time, remember, do good, drink well, and stop tariffs. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.